Turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. And if you're able to, I would invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have been set free by Jesus Christ for freedom. May we understand rightly the freedom that you have purchased for us. May we stand firm in it and not submit again to a yoke of slavery that we might live as you intended us to live, as your free children. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Our normal practice on Sunday mornings is to make our way through a single book, verse by verse, from beginning to end. We've been in the book of Luke for two years on the 13th of this month, and we're through Luke chapter 15. So, 
By my math, I think it's going to be another two years. <laughs> Maybe less. In, in uh, our normal routine, we are in Luke, but this morning I wanted to take a break from Luke and look at the book of Galatians. Now, for the last year, the high school, Sunday school, has been going through the book of Galatians, and we were uh, just recently in these verses and, and still not all the way through them, and so I thought it would be fun, enjoyable, and beneficial for you to get kind of a peek into what we've been looking at in our Sunday school. And I think also these verses are very applicable for our lives. You'll also find, I didn't plan this, but you'll also find that they actually relate very well to what we just studied in Luke chapter 15. See if you can spot some of those connections this morning. Now, because we're not in the book of Galatians, I can't assume you know the context, and so I want to set a little of that context before we begin. So turn back to chapter 1, Galatians chapter 1, and before we look more closely, let's set that context for Paul's argument up to chapter 5. In verse 6, Paul launches into his argument. Normally at this spot in his epistles, he would give thanks to God on behalf of the people he's writing to, and he, he skips that. And he launches right into this severe warning. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now, if you look at the book of 1 Corinthians, perhaps the worst church in the entire New Testament, they had every problem under the sun, every problem you could imagine. They were completely out of order. Everything was flipped upside down. Paul begins that letter with a whole paragraph, five or six verses of thanksgiving for what God's done in their lives. Why does he begin the book of Galatians with no such thanksgiving? Because the issue that he is addressing is whether or not they are in the church. The issue that he's addressing is so fundamental, it determines whether or not they are Christians. And if they are not Christians, then all the thanksgiving is out the window. Even messy, messed up Christians, God is working in. And Paul gives thanks for them, trusting that they will be purified. But those who are on the fence between believing the gospel and not believing the gospel, Paul says, there's, there's not even a place for me to give thanks until we settle this issue. And so he launches in, I have heard you're deserting Christ. You're turning to a different gospel. Verse 7, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And so the issue that Paul is addressing is the gospel. There is no other gospel. There is only one. And yet there are other so-called gospels. And if you believe the wrong gospel, or if you believe the gospel distorted, then you are cut off from Christ. Look at verse 8. But even if we, if I come back to you 
Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Let him be eternally damned. The stakes are high. And what Paul is addressing in the book of Galatians is the true gospel. And he's addressing the false gospels that are perpetrated by others that will damn you. And the Galatians are on the fence between believing the true gospel and turning to another gospel. And so Paul launches in to attack, to address this issue head on. Paul is addressing to the Galatians the gospel and its distortions, and the stakes can't be higher. Now, Paul's not only defending the gospel, he's also having to defend himself. Because not only did they attack Paul's gospel, they attacked Paul. And so from chapter 1, verse 11, all the way to chapter 2, verse 15, he lays out how he received the gospel from the Lord Jesus Christ and how that same gospel was not taught to him by humans, but by Jesus Christ. And when he came to the other apostles, they didn't teach him or add to him, but they accepted him. And they affirmed the truth of his gospel. So he defends his own ministry. And then we see in chapter 2, verse 15, where this distortion comes from. He says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. Just as we sang about a few minutes ago, even our greatest works are worthless before him. And one thing can save us, that by faith we plead the work of Jesus Christ. That by faith we depend not on our own works, but we depend on what he has done on our behalf. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. No one. And he lays out the gospel that if you are saved, it is not because you worked harder, you ran faster, you did more for God but rather that you trusted in Christ, that through faith you are saved. Now, as he goes through this section, he goes further. The issue they were facing was not just whether or not they were saved by faith, but the second question that he addresses, which is probably closer to what they were dealing with, is how then do we live our lives? How are we sanctified? How do we live now? Because more than likely what the Galatians were facing, they were already in the church. They weren't facing the issue of salvation. They were facing significantly or more precisely, how should we live as Christians? And the Jews 
who came to them were saying, now that you're a Christian, you Gentile sinners and you Jew sinners, well, Jews who came into the church, now that you're in the church, now that you're in Christ, you need Moses to be holy. You have to obey the law that God gave. If you're going to be in the church, you Gentiles, you need to be circumcised and you need to obey Moses. You need to obey the law. And if that is the case, that sure transforms our Christian life, doesn't it? And they were standing, the Galatians, standing, facing that attack, and they were wavering. Some of them had begun to accept it and say, okay, I must have to obey the law. And they were beginning to turn back to the law. And Paul writes to say, no, do not do that. Do not do that. Now, if you're a Jew, there's a legitimate question to ask. How does God's law fit in with faith? Christ himself said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And if he hasn't come to abolish it, and it is God's good and righteous law, well, then how do we relate to the law that he has given us? Do we just throw out the Old Testament? Now, some of us, I think, do that in practice because we ignore the Old Testament completely, and we were scared of it almost. But the, the issue that they were facing is, must we obey it? How do we relate to it now that we are in Christ? Look at chapter 3, verse 21. Is God's law in opposition to faith? Is God's law, his righteous law that he has given to us, is it contrary to the promises of God? Do we get rid of it? Do we ignore it? Is it worthless? Verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? By no means, certainly not, absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Verse 23, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian, until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. His answer is the law of God in opposition to faith in Jesus Christ? No, it is not. They are not in opposition to each other. They serve different purposes. And the law was never intended to save, ever. If a law had been given that could make us righteous, then the law is our righteousness. We become righteous by obeying the law. 
But the law was not given in order to make us righteous, but rather to hold us captive or, as he says later, to act as our guardian until Christ comes. And now that Christ has come, are we still under that old man? Still enslaved to the law? No, we are not. We have been set free. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Look down at verse 7. So, you are no longer a slave, but a son. Son, then an heir through God. Verse 31 of chapter 4. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Are we slaves to the law? No, we are free. Now look at verse 1 of chapter 5. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This is the issue that Paul is addressing in this section. This is the issue that we want to address this morning. Freedom. What does it mean to be free in Christ Jesus? Have you ever talked to somebody who said, I'm free. I'm a Christian. I'm free, so I can do whatever I want. You ever heard someone say that before? And it's usually when they're about to do something really bad. But I can do that. I'm free. Is that what freedom means? Does freedom in this verse, in this section, does freedom mean we have Nothing to guide us, and we do whatever we want. And then secondly, Paul wants to address the issue of slavery. Because what is the opposite of freedom? The opposite of freedom is slavery in that sense. And so this is our basic outline. Paul gives it to us in verse 1. Christ has set us free for freedom, Stand firm, therefore, and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. So in introduction, one, or A, stand firm. That's our first charge, is to stand firm. We're going to look at what that means, but stand firm and do not submit to a yoke of slavery. Now in verses 2 through 15, that's what Paul is addressing. These two major topics. We'll look at it in three parts. And the first charge that Paul gives to us is that we have to, we must refuse the yoke of slavery. What's interesting to the person who says, I'm free in Christ so I can do whatever I want, is the very next verse, Paul, well, actually in that verse, Paul says, no, you're not free to go back to slavery. <laughs> you're not. You can't do it. If you, if you think your freedom in Christ lets you go back to slavery under the law, you're mistaken. You're mistaken. Today, how do people define freedom? 
when you watch the television, when you watch the news, when you read the newspaper, how do they speak of freedom? Freedom means I can do anything I want. That's the message that we hear constantly given to us. I can do whatever I want. I'm, I'm free. This is a free country. I can do whatever I want. Is that the freedom that we have in Christ? Mm, in a sense, but only in a sense. Okay, let's look at verses 2 through 6. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Verse 2 is, is jarring. Look. You don't see that very often. In the middle of a letter, look. <laughs> this, is, this is mom grabbing the kid by the scruff of the, the neck or by the shirt and saying, look, I meant it. Don't do this. And Paul does that verbally. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Now, if you've read through the rest of the book, you, you get circumcision is not the real issue. Circumcision, circumcision is one issue that represents a larger issue. And in these verses, you'll see Paul, Paul's not primarily dealing with circumcision. Look at verse two or three. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. And then verse four, you are severed from Christ. You who would be circumcised? No. What does verse four say? you who would be justified by the law. So the issue of circumcision is accepting righteousness by the law. We have to refuse the yoke of slavery, and in order to do that, the first thing we have to do is that we cannot, we do not accept righteousness by the law. Do not accept righteousness by the law. When Paul says in verses 2 and 3, accept circumcision, he means the same thing he says in verse 4, seeking to be justified by the law. Now the issue, the issue that they were facing was far larger, it was far greater than circumcision. What they were proposing ultimately is that you are justified, you are made righteous when you obey the law. And if you accept that, you are putting on the yoke of slavery. You are accepting the yoke of slavery. And if you put on the yoke of slavery, what are you not? You are not free any longer. So do not accept righteousness by the law. Now the reason for that is given here in verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. See, if you accept circumcision as a basis of righteousness, if you say, by obeying this one law, I will be righteous, guess what that makes you obligated to do? Obey all of the law. And if you have to obey all of the law, who will stand? No one, no one will stand. The law will crush you. And so you can't accept part of the law. You can't accept, say, honor the Sabbath and say you must honor the Sabbath in order to be righteous. If you accept honor the Sabbath, then what do you have to accept? 
every other law that God gives. And therefore, Paul says, by accepting circumcision, you will be obligated to accept all of the law. And if you are obligated to accept all of the law, you will perish. You will be enslaved to the law. And if you are enslaved to the law, you will perish. Look at Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. If you look at the law and say, well, I can do that one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that law and that will make me righteous. You are under the entire law. Your sin will be brought to light and you will fall. You can't pick and choose with God's law. And so Paul emphatically says, do not submit to this yoke of slavery. Don't accept righteousness by the law because if you do, you will be under the whole law. You will be enslaved to it and you will die. Second, beginning in verse, well, verse 5, Paul says, wait for the hope of righteousness. Wait for the hope of righteousness. Verse 5, back in Galatians 5, verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now he contrasts this with what they were tempted to do. They were tempted to accept circumcision. They were tempted to seek their justification through the law. And Paul says, no, that's not what we do. Rather, through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now, how do we do that? We wait for the hope of righteousness. How do we do it? By whose power do we do it? Do we do it in the flesh? No, we do it through the Spirit. The Spirit empowers us to wait. And why do we wait? What causes us to wait for this hope? It is our faith. It's what we believe. And third, we wait for the hope of being made righteous. Now let me read that again. Through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. What is it that we're waiting for? We are waiting for something. Are we waiting for more law that will make us righteous? No, we are not. We are waiting to become righteous. We are waiting to be made righteous. Now, is there, isn't there a sense when we talk about justification, what's our standard definition for justification? Justification is being declared righteous. 
when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, God says, I no longer see you. In a sense, I see Christ, you in Christ, therefore you're righteous. You're declared righteous. Now, did anyone in their experience of being justified magically become sinless? Anyone? No one. So then what are we waiting for right now? Are we waiting for God to come down and declare, yeah, this guy's got it figured out. He's got it all together. He's righteous. No, what are we waiting for? We groan in our bodies. All of creation groans, not, not just because of our physical ailments. And so, some of our ailments are serious enough that there is real groaning in them. But primarily, what is it that we're waiting for? We are waiting to be made righteous. Because when we see him, we will be like him. For we shall see him as he truly is. Our hope as Christians is that when Christ returns, or when we die and are with him, we will become perfectly, completely righteous. We will be without sin any longer. Can you get excited about that? I know I can. Day after day, what is it that we're battling? Not our neighbors. The problem in your life is not your teacher. It's not your mom. It's not your kids. The problem in your life is you, your own wicked, sinful heart. Okay, that's the bad news. What's the good news? That's, that's going to change. When Christ returns, we'll be transformed and become like him. That's our hope. Our hope is not that America will figure things out and everything will get better. It's not. Our hope is that Christ will return and wipe out his enemies and transform us into his glory. That I can get excited about. So we wait for this hope of righteousness and we don't do it in the flesh. We do it by the Spirit and we don't do it through the law. We don't wait for the hope of righteousness by obeying the law. We do it by faith. It's because of what our faith is based in that we wait for that righteousness. Now, third... Paul says, under refusing the yoke of slavery, he also says, we do not accept righteousness by lawlessness. Now, what do I mean? Because he doesn't say lawlessness anywhere. One of the common and probably predominant problems facing the American church today is when we preach the gospel, we say rightly how salvation is by faith alone. Sola fide. We absolutely believe that. But you have to define that before you understand rightly what Paul is saying. Because here's what is often taught. In order to be saved, you believe. And once you believe that, which for the last, not so much the last decade, but for the previous 20 years, what did that mean? It meant you said a prayer in Awana or Sunday school, and therefore you know you believed. And if you said that prayer, you know, when you were four years old, or I think I did when I was three, 
I don't actually remember that. I just remember trying to remember when I did say the prayer. That's weird. But when I was three, I was trying to remember how long ago I had said the prayer because I knew I said it. Because I knew that's then when I was saved. Now, the problem with that thinking is, okay, I had faith. So now what? I do whatever I want, right? I'm free. If, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. If you are saved, you are free in Christ. For freedom, he sets you free. Therefore, you can do anything you want. Now, that's what's taught today. That's rampant in the church today. Hey, I'm a Christian. You, you, you can't tell me what to do. Don't get in my business. I'm free. I'm free. But actually, Paul does not agree. Look at verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Now pause there. He's been attacking circumcision. Okay, Paul, so I get saved by not being circumcised? Is that it? No. No, the issue isn't circumcision or uncircumcision. Those don't count for anything. But what does count? What does count? Only faith, okay? That's normally where we put the period, and that's true. Only faith counts. But this is my question. What kind of faith? Look, look, what does it say? But only faith working through love. Is the type of faith that saves us lawless faith, faith that does anything it wants? I said in a sense, and I'll, I'll explain that later. The answer is no. It's not do whatever you want. What does real faith do? Real faith works through love. Does it work in order to be saved? No, if it, if it did, that would be righteousness through the law. Why does it work? Because it has to? Because God said you must do this? It works because of or through love. It works through love. Now, if you have the kind of faith that does not work through love, what does that say about your faith? Perhaps it is what James calls dead faith. So does that mean that we need to get out there and do a bunch of work or we're not going to heaven because our faith isn't good enough? No. It doesn't mean that because, again, you would go back to works righteousness. You would go back to righteousness through the law. And Paul's answer is it's not about circumcision and it's not about uncircumcision. It's about faith working through love. Now, that's the first point, that we have to refuse the yoke of slavery. Second, Paul says, we must reject teachers of legalism. We have to reject teachers of legalism. Now, legalism is a word, kind of a buzzword, thrown around, especially in the church. Uh, if you really want to shut someone up quick, just tell them they're a legalist. And as soon as you say that, oh no, he said, you know, it's the L word, legalist, um, you, don't, you don't say that. Biblically speaking, there's two types of legalism. Okay, there's two types of legalism that you'll find defined as, as such in the Bible. 
One is that in order to be justified, in order to be righteous, you must obey the law. Works righteousness is true legalism, and it is anathema, it is accursed, get rid of it. And if someone is saying that, they ought to be ashamed and shut up. Second type of legalism is when I take my conscience, my convictions, my personal preferences, and I say, say it's good to uh, not do work on Sunday. Now that you know isn't true of me because I'm up here working. But if I said, hey, it's good for me not to work on Sunday, therefore, Simeon, you shouldn't work on Sunday either. Now what have I done? I've given him a law that he has to obey in order to be righteous. That's legalism. Okay? So those are your two types of legalism, either that you're made righteous by the law or that you take your own preferences and put them as a law onto someone else. That's what we're dealing with when we say we must, must reject teachers of legalism. Those who add their own ideas to the law and those who say that righteousness comes through the law. Now, there's several reasons that Paul gives, and we'll go through them quickly. Verse 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. Now, what Paul says is, what is their job? What is their goal? What are they accomplishing in your lives? If you listen to these teachers, what do they keep you from doing? Obeying the truth. When you give way to these teachers, when you give way to those who teach legalism, righteousness through the law, when you do that, you are kept from obeying the truth. What is Paul's goal in that verse, by the way? What would he hope that they did? What would he want them to do, the Galatians? Obey the truth right? The reason he's so mad at these legalists is because they're keeping the Galatians from obeying the truth. Paul wants them to obey the truth. Verse 8, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. What's the source of their teaching? Is this more another message from God? Is this new added fullness to what God has given us? No, this is a totally different message than the one God has given them. This is not the gospel. It is not from him who calls you. So they keep you from obeying the truth. Second, they infect those who listen to them. Verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You know that story. We've talked about that before. When you put a little leaven into dough, the whole lump of dough becomes leaven. And when you tolerate a teacher of legalism, when you listen to and accept them, you will become like them. And so it is essential that we reject them, that we have nothing to do with them. And then Paul adds on to this, they're rightly condemned and punished. Verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. I know once you hear me, if the Spirit is in you, you will Listen and not turn over to them. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Such teaching isn't tolerated, it's punished. Verse 11, 
this is really an aside from an earlier issue in the book, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? That doesn't make some people were saying that Paul actually preached circumcision. And he says that's ridiculous because if I did, all the Jews would like me and they wouldn't be trying to kill me. That's his basic argument in verse 11. In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Verse 12, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Now, this statement is jarring. Why does he say this in the middle of the book? Did Paul just lose his temper? Finally got so mad, he just blurted this out and we're kind of embarrassed of that verse? No, it's fitting and appropriate for Paul to say this. Why? Because the severity of his words matches the severity of error in the teachers. When the teachers say something so far off that it will damn you, what do they deserve as a result? That same matching severity of language. It's also a clever play on words, but I don't think that's the point. Let's move on. Third, what do we do in order to stand uh, firm? What do we do in order to be free in Christ? Mine says four. four. Oh, because of the introduction. Good. Third. It is third. It is third. Uh, we must stand firm in the faith. We must stand firm in the faith. 13 through 15. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh but through love serve one another. So how do we stand firm in the faith? How do we stand firm in faith? How do we do it? By doing whatever we want, right? Because we're free, do anything you want. It's America, free country. No, no, not at all. Look at verse 13. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh but through love serve one another. Now, what happens if I take my freedom and I say, I'm free, I can do whatever I want, I'm going to gratify the flesh? Now think about that. What happens when I do that? I make myself a slave to the flesh. What happens when you gratify the desires of the flesh? When you present yourself as an obedient servant to someone, what do you become? They're slave. So is it a good idea for us to gratify the desires of the flesh and become slaves to the flesh? No, because if we do that, we will become slaves and Christ set us free. It's for freedom Christ set us free. So it makes no sense to submit again to the flesh. That's not what freedom in Christ looks like. Rather, freedom in Christ looks like through love, serving one another. So we have to stand firm in the faith. A, freedom in Christ does not lead to gratifying the flesh. Doesn't lead to gratifying the flesh. If the Spirit empowers us, if the Spirit is working through us, what type of things will we do? Spirit-like things. If the Spirit is working through us, what kind of things will we do? Spiritual things. 
You notice we're in Galatians chapter 5. What's the most famous part of the whole book of Galatians? But the fruit of the Spirit is, and he explains what the fruit of the Spirit is, and he says, but these things are in opposition to the works of the flesh. The works of the flesh are on one side, and they're in opposition to the works of the Spirit. So if the Spirit's working in us because we're free, then what will we do? Not gratify the desires of the flesh. Rather, we will bear the fruit of the Spirit. Second, if our faith is genuine, it will work through love. In this verse, it will serve through love. In verse 6, it will work faith working through love. The type of faith we have is not some passive uh, thing. Well, it is very passive in one sense. It's not the type of uh, lazy I guess you would say, dead faith, but an active working faith that loves. Because of love, it serves others. It works not to be justified, but because it loves. And why do we love? Because he first loved us. And so what we're doing is not trying to attain to a level of righteousness and then God will let us in, but rather God has let us in and so out of a heart filled with love for what he has done, we serve one another. If the spirit works in us, we won't indulge the flesh. If our faith is genuine, it will work through love. And third, if our hope is righteousness, if we believe Christ is coming back and he will make us righteous, if we really believe that, are we going to go out and live unrighteous lives? If we go out and live unrighteous lives and give ourselves over to unrighteousness, what's our hope? Not righteousness. It's not righteousness. Our hope is something else. So if our hope is righteousness, we will, in the present, deny the flesh. And then lastly, freedom in Christ leads to loving one another. And I just want to give you two points in loving one another. Of course, we could do a whole series on that. But just look, look down at 13, second half, faith, I'm sorry, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So how do we love one another? Well, look, looking at this section of Galatians, do any of you think, as we read verses uh, 7 through 12, wait, Paul, you didn't love those guys. I wish that they would emasculate themselves. That's not very loving, Paul. But what does Paul say we will do? Love one another, right? Serve one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. Is Paul a total hypocrite to, in, in verse 12, say, I wish they'd emasculate themselves, and then in verse 14 say, love your neighbor as yourself? No, he's not. What is the basis for loving your neighbor as yourself? Is it the, the list of politically correct things you can do and say and think that we have in our society? What is the standard by which we love? Where does our love come from? Who is love? God is love, right? God is love. The highest standard of love is not what other people want. 
It's not political correctness. The highest standard of love is the God who loved us. And so Paul, far more than being worried about these teachers of legalism, Paul is worried about God and his glory and his honor. And the reason that Paul can rebuke the false teachers so sharply is because it's God who he is most concerned about. It's a love for God that has allowed him to do that without hypocrisy and then turn around and say, we must love one another. And then second, well, I never gave you the blank. Number one, we love when we fight against sinfulness in ourselves and in others. And in others. So we fight against the sin that is in our our own lives, and we also are willing to fight in appropriate ways against the sinfulness of others. And by fight, I don't mean argue and stuff like that. I mean battle against, work against. Second, we love when we work for the benefit of one another, even at great cost to ourselves. How did God demonstrate his love for us? That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If we're going to love one another, do we love each other only when it's convenient? Do we love each other only when it's easy? No. I mean, we do that. That's good. Do it. Love each other even when it's easy. And if we were sinless, it would probably be easy all the time. But we love one another even when it comes at cost to ourselves, even when it requires sacrifice on our part. Why do we love that way? Because if you don't love, you're going to hell. Is that what motivates us? No. True love drives out all fear, right? The reason that we do that is because God has shown his love in our own hearts and our own lives so that we have the power through the Spirit to love one another. Not in order to be saved, but because he has saved us. Let's live that type of lives. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we praise you that you have set us free. And we thank you that in our own lives, you have spoken. You have told us it is not by works, but it is by faith. And you have told us your own works are not good enough, but, but Christ's are. Thank you that you have given to us faith in which we can rest, and in which we can work. May we never confuse that work as justifying us or being the grounds of our salvation. But instead, Lord, may it come naturally as a fruit coming out of a tree that has been watered by its maker. We thank you for your work in our lives. And Lord, we pray that you would help us not to gratify the desires of the flesh, thinking that that's why we are free. But instead, may we through love, serve one another because of what you have done for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.